Please take out your Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Red Pew Bible sitting in the rack in front of you, and we'd love for you to take it, use it, keep it. And we'd only ask if you've got 12 of them at home, you bring them back. If you have five of them at home, bring them back. You don't have to get to 12. We are in a series in the book of Genesis, walking through the entirety of the origin of the nation of Israel. We're trying to get a perspective of the whole scriptures. We've looked at, we started in the literal creation of the world. We walked through the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel. And now we're wandering into the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this morning, as we continue into the life of Abraham, I want to pause just for a second to say thanks to Shane, who I don't think is with us this morning, who did an excellent job last week of opening up Romans 4. Because it's been our hope as we walked through the Old Testament that we'd see the connections from the Old Testament to the New. Therefore, the, the times that I'm going to be away this summer, we've put some passages, some New Testament passages that reflect back onto the Old Testament stories we're looking at. Those are the passages we want to look at. Because we want to see the connections between the Old Testament and the New. For in Romans 4, Paul asserts, that Abraham was not only deemed righteous, but that he was justified. And all that came as, as a result, not of works, but by faith alone. And that should sound really, really familiar. We've done this because we want you to see how the Old Testament shines light on the New Testament. We want you to have an understanding of Abraham in the book of Genesis, because we think that's going to help you know and understand Jesus better. And that is, it's our hope, that you would see that this patriarch of the Jewish faith, one of our spiritual forefathers, and one of the men that God identifies himself with. Remember, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we can quickly decide that these guys are superior morally, that they're better than we are. And yet when you lean into the text, you find that what set them apart is that they believed. Just like you do. That they're not that far off from us. They're not these morally superior guys who are better than us. They're faithful. Truthfully, they're not even that faithful, right? They just believed. A lot like you and I. They're deemed righteous because of their belief. Because they trusted. Because they had faith. We see the same message in the New Testament. And so this morning as we jump back into the story of Abraham and Sarah... We see a God who'd made a promise to Abraham and Sarah, a promise that they weren't expecting. And what we see is now in this text this morning is God's not only going to reiterate his promise, he's going to clarify its fulfillment. It's almost as if God is saying, I told you I would be faithful. I told you I would keep my word. And I know that you're waiting and I know that you're longing and I know that you're even doubting, but I want you to know I'm faithful. I want you to know I keep my word even when you have to wait. It's the Lord reminding Abraham and Sarah that he's a promise keeper. And that's a word that many of us need to hear in the situations we're in. For we know that Jesus would never leave us nor forsake us, but we need to be reminded. And we know that once we are in Christ, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus and we need to be reminded. And we know that God works out all things for our good. But when life seems really messed up, we need to be reminded. 
And so as we turn into Genesis 18, we need to consider that, that God is a reminding God, that he's declared the truth, and he's going to reassert that to us over and over again. Friends, that's one of the reasons you need to be in your Bible regularly. It'll fortify your faith. You'll see over and over again, wait, God does keep his promises. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. He's faithful. I need to cling to him. So as we turn to Genesis chapter 18, we need to consider the promise that the Lord God gave Abraham and Sarah, and we need to consider it chronologically because there's something to that. So listen to this. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he made him a huge promise. This is what God says in Genesis 12. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Abraham was 75 years old when God made that promise. And he didn't know everything that it meant. But he and Sarah believed God. And so they stepped out in obedience. By the time you get to Genesis 16, 10 years have gone by. They have moved, they've been obedient, and they still have no children. They still have no great nation. So just for a moment, think about what's happened in the last 10 years of your life. All that's happened or didn't happen over all those months. And if you start to lean into that, you start to see and understand how Abram and Sarah began to doubt that they knew the promise of God. The promise that they had stood on, the promise they'd rested on, and a promise that they doubted because it had taken so long. And yet in Genesis 15, God reiterates the promise saying, look towards the heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham and Sarah believed the promise. Fourteen more years go by. Now remember, he was 75 when he received the promise. Now 24 years have gone by, and Abraham is now 99 years of age when God reasserts his promise and gives them the covenant sign of circumcision that they would be reminded every time they came together that it was the Lord who'd carry out the promise. It was the Lord who'd give them an heir. And so in Genesis 17, we find Abraham again doubting the promise. And so again, the Lord reiterates his promise now to a hundred year old man and his 90 year old wife. I will be faithful. Though you doubt, I will be faithful. Even if it takes 25 years, I will be faithful. So let's turn to Genesis 18 to see the final reiteration of God's promise. Genesis 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. Now, the first thing we need to jump into this is to recognize that the first part of verse 1 is a summary statement. Moses is telling us that the Lord appeared to Abraham. 
that we have to acknowledge that as a summary statement, because as you follow the rest of this passage along, it seems to be, to me, and to be fair, most of the commentators who write about this, that Abraham does not know that this is the Lord yet, as you follow through the text. And so when he is greeting these people, you've got to recognize they're in an Eastern culture where if somebody comes to your door in that culture, you not only go and greet them, but you show them hospitality. In fact, if you've traveled in parts of the Eastern part of the world, you, you would know that. I've experienced it a couple of times. If someone approaches your home, you're obligated to show them hospitality. It's a cultural expectation. And so what Abraham is doing here is not spiritual, it's cultural. He pops up and he greets them. Verse 3. That's what Abraham says. O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you might refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. Now, this passage is not expressly about hospitality. But at the same time, we need to acknowledge it as an example, right? Abraham offers his guests water that they might wash their feet. He offers them rest and refreshment. He offers them some bread. And while that is a normal cultural practice... For them to under-promise and over-deliver, it is important for us to see what happens. Because he under-promises and over-delivers. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, verse 6, and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour. Now, if you're like the Killer Lane family and you don't measure your flour in seas, you need to know that he's talking about 20 pounds of flour. That is no small measurement. In fact, never at our house would we have 20 pounds of flour. We tend to buy the 10-pound bag, refill the little thing, go on from there. But he's got a lot of flour to make cake. Abraham continues, knead it, make cakes. And Abraham runs to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. He took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now, hospitality is not the main point of this text. But most commentators believe that Moses describes the scene to contrast the reception that the visitors receive here at the hand of Abraham and the, and the same reception that they'll receive in Sodom and Gomorrah, which we'll see next week. It's a good lesson. It's a good example in hospitality. And before we leave it, we need to at least acknowledge that hospitality is something that the New Testament commands all believers to practice. Consider the words of Peter. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That means show hospitality without grumbling. That we're to be kind people. We're to be a generous people. When we see people outside our house, we're to offer them things. It's, it's supposed to be a mark of who we are. When there are workers on my street, my kids, and particularly my daughters, love to run bottles of water out to these guys. It's, it's an issue of hospitality. 
Now, at no point have I told Pam to go get 20 pounds of pounds of flour and start making them cake. Clearly, we've got some room. But we're to be a hospitable people. The author of the book of Hebrews, many people think he's actually alluding to this passage in Genesis 18 when he pens Hebrews 13.2. This is what he says in Hebrews. Do not forget to entertain strangers. That's what hospitality is, according to the scriptures. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Show hospitality. It's the example we see in the text. And of course, Jesus himself taught, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. Jesus seems to take for granted that we're going to do this, and he's going to commend us for it. Therefore, church, be a hospitable people. We find it in the text, Old Testament, and new. And that's your small exhortation to practice hospitality which is not the main thrust of this text. So let's wander back into Genesis 18. Abraham is being hospitable and hosting. Verse 9. Then they say to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. And this is the moment that changes the conversation. Now there's something here you got to lean into, that God shows up at his tent Some people call this a theophany. It could, in fact, be Jesus and two angels. Show up in this tent and actually share a meal with them, an intimate fellowship. It's quite a picture that God actually wants to come dine with you. It's not just Jesus and Zacchaeus that we see this example. We we find it throughout the Scriptures. God wants to have intimate fellowship with you. He wants to dine at your table. And then he changes the conversation. Where's your wife? And that's the moment when you see that the sovereign Lord of all knows all things. Because what he does is he makes plain that this is no incidental visit. He wasn't just in the neighborhood with nothing to do. He's with no three ordinary men. He calls his wife by name, bringing attention to his purpose. And says in verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And if you've not been tracking through the whole story, if you just pop into this verse and you see it, you miss the fact that God is reaffirming and reestablishing a promise that he's been making to them for over 25 years. A promise that they've been hoping in. A promise they've been longing in. A promise that they've been wondering how it's going to be fulfilled. And the Lord affirms it the year before. And have reaffirmed it 14 years before. God is telling them, I'm going to keep my promises. Doesn't matter how long you wait. I'm faithful. And I will keep my word. And it's almost as if Moses, the author of Genesis, struggled to believe it too when he pens verse 11. And now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. He's making a strong statement there to go, wait a second, this isn't even possible. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. They were old. 
conception, let alone pregnancy, let alone given birth, all of this would have been physically impossible for Abraham and Sarah. And yet, we can't miss this. We can't forget this. For our God is a promise keeper. He's a miracle worker. And he accomplishes his will in his time. And we have to be reminded of that. The more I studied this whole passage all week long, the more I came back to this idea that we get really comfortable with a small view of God. And there are times and seasons where it's got to be blown up to understand God is so much bigger than we think or can imagine. We, we live in this world where God is just capable of the small things. And we miss the impossible acts that he can accomplish. We miss that he's amazing. God is a promise keeper. And sometimes it takes a year. Sometimes it takes 10 years. Sometimes it takes 24 years. Sometimes it takes 25. And I tend to think in my own little faith, if I ask for something and it's not in my hand in 10 minutes, that somehow God has disappointed me. Somehow he's let me down. Somehow his faithfulness is challenged. That's got to be solved today. If not today, tomorrow, maybe by the weekend. Certainly by next month. And yet God is willing to ask us to rely on him, to wait on him. Because he's the Lord. God works in his timing. How many of us have prayed for somebody in our family, somebody close to us to know Christ? That's what I kept coming back to as I struggled with this. We've waited 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, or whatever, asking, begging God to do something. And that doesn't mean it won't happen, and it doesn't mean that it will. What it means is that God answers prayers in His time and for His glory. And what we need to be reminded of is we're not the most important person in the story. He is. It's about His glory, not about Ben's glory. We need to trust that his plan is the best, even when we can't see the end of it. Because his plan, you ask why 50 years or 25 years, his plan gives him the most glory. And we need to be satisfied with that. He's the Lord. And we aren't. And in verse 12, as if the Lord's sovereignty needed another boost, we see verse 12, and Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She laughs to herself. You lean into the text, it seems to be that this is not an audible laugh. It's not an audible noise. She says to herself, she speaks to herself. She doesn't say this audibly. You can't hear it out loud. Nobody else would have heard it. She says, I'm worn out. I've waited and waited and waited. Finally, can I have a kid? And in verse 13, the Lord, who hears absolutely everything, says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Abraham's saying, I didn't hear anything. Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? And that's what we've got to hone in on this morning. Is anything too hard for the Lord. Man, you guys are talking to me today. 
Got to do a wedding yesterday that was full of charismatics. They talked to me through the whole wedding, and I loved it. So hopefully some of you are here. Is anything impossible for God? What we got to lean into, if we trust God, if we lean in on the text, is if you've asked God for something and it's not been given to you yet, it's for his glory's sake that you don't have it. It's for his sake that you don't have it. Because he doesn't look down on us as a genie God just looking to answer our wishes. He looks down on us as a loving father who knows what we need, who knows what we can handle, who knows what when we can handle it. And he provides for us. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. The Lord heard Sarah even in her thoughts. He knew her desires. He knew her pain. And we've got to hear that in the text. We see this Several times as we walk through the scriptures that if you're in pain, if you're hurting, you feel all alone. Trust me, God knows. And for some reason, in his glory's sake, in his name's sake, he's willing to wait to relieve that for you. Because somehow he's going to receive glory by it. I don't know how. He does. He knew her desires. He knew her pain. And he asked the question that we need to be reminded of, is anything too hard? Friends, we've got to be reminded that it is our the Lord God who comes to meet with Abraham. It's the Lord God that comes to meet with you. It's the Lord God that sought out table fellowship, an intimate relationship with Abraham. And it's the Lord God that seeks out an intimate relationship with you. He seeks out table relationship with you, with the one true God, the creator of heavens and of earth, the one who's able to do the regular and the normal and the everyday, that which we can trust in and believe in. And he's able to do the extraordinary and the impossible. Is anything too hard? And in this text, he tells an old woman, next year you'll have a son. To Mary, he says, you're a virgin. I'm giving you a baby anyway. God wants to make it clear. He can do anything. Verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, you did laugh. I think this is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Friends, not only could the Lord hear her thoughts, he could open her womb. And he wanted her to know. See, here in this part, he's speaking directly to her, knowing she's on the other side of the door, knowing she's listening in on the conversation. He's acknowledged that to Abraham. Now he turns to her on the other outside of the room and says, nope, you laughed. I heard it. I'm with you. I see everything. So what are we to do with Genesis 18? As we start to wrap up, I want to remind you of the words of Jesus. We'll start in John 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask in my name. Friends, we should be reminded that we're to ask 
And it doesn't matter what it is. We're to ask. Whatever you ask in my name. And that's not a recipe that you end all of your prayers with. In Jesus' name, and he'll give you a Ferrari. I tried that. 2003 Chevy Suburban. Covered with rust. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you lean in on that verse, we're to see a picture that Jesus is declaring to us about the Father, that he wants us to have a relationship with him when he goes and asks. Why? Because it's a healthy relationship. It's like my kids coming and saying, hey, Dad, can I have ice cream? No, you can't have ice cream. You just ate a bunch of cookies. But I love you. He's a good father. He wants us to come to him. But it's that last part of the verse we have to be cue in on. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That God provides for us in accordance with his glory, not in accordance with your glory. For he doesn't delight in making you comfortable. He doesn't delight in making you happy. He doesn't delight in making you content. He delights in you relying on him. And you trusting in him and you being faithful. Therefore, as Paul prayed, would you please remove the thorn in my flesh? God says no. Happened to Paul. Therefore, we need to lean in on that and understand. We'll go through seasons where we say, God, please. Please today. Please this minute. And God can look at you and say, my child, I love you so much. But no, I've got a purpose. I've got a plan. Just trust me. Hold on to me. Cling to me. Know that I'm faithful and good and I'll carry you through this. I've got a plan. It's not to ease your burden. And we don't like that. But somehow it brings him glory. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. As we trust in Jesus, as we lean in on his sufficiency. That it's not about me getting whatever I want. That I go, oh God, you're good. It's about Jesus being enough to carry me through all of my deficiencies. All the things I lack. Jesus reiterates this several verses later in John 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified. His glory is still at stake that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So let's consider that. Jesus tells us to ask in his name. Here it tells us to abide in him. And my words abide in you and ask whatever you wish. And friends, again, it's not painting a picture for us that God's a genie ready to grant our wishes. Again, he's a loving father who knows what's good for us who wants to grow us up in Christ and grow us in our reliance on him. And as we look at these couple of verses, I live in this tension where I want to give us a narrowed perspective of God. I want to start to say things that are going to suddenly reduce our expectations with God so that we can kind of create a God that that is safe and easy. I want to resolve the tension so that we can go, oh, but God, you're, you're small. The problem is the text leaves God huge. The text leaves God incredibly large and makes it all about his glory, not ours. He tells us to ask. He tells us to come to him. 
with whatever we wish and wrestle with that. That if it's according to his name's sake, if it's for his glory, it will always be given to you. And if it isn't, he wants you to wrestle with that desire. He wants you to wrestle with that wish. And he wants you to rely on him. It's interesting, next week, we'll have to deal with what does it mean to ask. We'll get into that. Uh, we see that with Abraham and God next week. So this is the question that remains. If we have a really big God that nothing is too hard for, what hard thing, what impossibility is before you now that God's asking you to trust about? What impossibility, what really hard thing is God asking you to hand to him to have faith to believe? It could be something you've waited for 25 years. It could be something you've waited for 40 years. It could be something you've waited for 10 years. That we're supposed to hand to him in faith. What are we wrestling with? Is it a long season of spiritual dryness? Is it a sin pattern that is getting out of control or has been out of control for a long time? Or is it more physical than that? Is it a body or mind that's failing? Is it struggling with chronic pain or sickness? Or is it something outside of you? Is it a struggle with a relationship that just can't get it right? Is it a child who just can't seem to obey? Is it a child that's wandered away from the Lord? Is it tensions at work? Are there things in our life that we've waited for years? Because this text seems to want to speak to that. That if we've been waiting on God for a long period of time, He wants to remind us, however long that wait has been, that He's a faithful God. And that His glory is at stake. And He will resolve your pain someday. And it may be on the other side of glory. But He will keep His promise to you. And if it doesn't get resolved, to trust Him. To believe in Him. To have faith in Him and to lean back on God. I've asked you to take this away and it hasn't gone away. So I'm going to trust you're going to use it somehow. We need to be called to trust him more and more and more, and not just with the small things, but the big. And we need to be called to believe in him and have faith in him, not just for the small stuff, but the big, to know that he will always keep his promises, that he will always be faithful. I want to end by reminding you of two of his promises, two things that mean a lot to me. Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I probably pray that 14 times a day. Father, could you just hold me with your righteous right hand? Father, could you give me the strength for this moment? Father, could you help me? 
whether that's taking a phone call that I don't want to take or dealing with a disobedient child that I don't want to deal with or having to learn to die to myself in the realm of marriage, which requires you to die to yourself regularly. God, would you just give me the strength? Would you help me? Will you uphold me with your righteous right hand? In Romans 8.28, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. He has a plan for absolutely everything. Our strengths, our weaknesses, our failures. He's going to work it all together for good. Friends, we need to be reminded that Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And we need to be reminded of a God who asks us, is anything too hard for me? Is anything impossible for me? It's an opportunity for us to believe and to trust God with the impossible. To believe, to trust, and to rest our faith upon him. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God, and you are a faithful God. Father, you work in your own timing, and that's hard for us. We live in an instant generation when I can order something in my phone and have it in my mailbox tomorrow. Father, would you forgive me for the times when I think you're an Amazon God, when I expect you to meet all of my needs in my time, according to my time frame? And Father, would you allow me and every soul in this room to trust you more and more and more? And to recognize that you work all things out for your glory. The things we're comfortable with and the things we're not. Would you allow us to trust you with the small everyday things? And would you blow our minds and help us to believe that you're the God of the impossible. Who asks us to ask for anything. And that if it's according to your will and it will bring you glory that you'll do it. And Father, would you be with us and grant us your presence? Would you strengthen us and help us and uphold us with your righteous right hand in those moments when we ask and you say not yet? That we could trust you, believe in you, and have faith in you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.